0: Afternoon, this is your captain, Jeannie, from Aladdin on Broadway. I'm pleased to welcome you aboard your magic carpet with direct services to Agrabah. On your left, you'll find a dazzling love story. To your right, show-stopping, singing and dancing. And just ahead, a whole new world ready for you to explore as we celebrate a decade of Broadway magic. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our shining, shimmering spectacle. Get tickets today at aladdinthemusical.com. At Parker.
1: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a great show for you today. You know, I've had a lot of questions over the years from people about – what the different career kind of paths and settings are like in anesthesiology. We've touched on this a little bit in terms of talking to some folks in private practice, obviously lots of folks in academics, but we haven't had a show dedicated to really kind of comparing and contrasting different options within the field of anesthesiology. And that is what we're going to do today. And I think it's going to be fantastic. We've got some great guests. Back again is Dr. Mike Asando, who, as frequent listeners will know, is a professor of anesthesiology at The Ohio State University, primarily focusing in cardiac anesthesia, and he's also uh, involved as an assistant dean for graduate medical education, so has that role, too, in academics. We also have a new guest on the show who I'm excited to have, Dr. Kyle Chomey, who is a general anesthesiologist and recently completed his obligation serving in the United States Air Force, so he'll be able to give us a little bit of information about what a career in the military in anesthesiology looks like. And then we have another return guest, the one and only Dr. Joe Cody, who, as listeners will know, was first on the show when he was a fellow with Dr. Asando at Ohio State, and now is in private practice doing both cardiac and general anesthesiology. So we are going to cover everything from the hardcore academic setting to the military to private practice. And I think this will be really helpful for people. So for Joe, Kyle, and Mike, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having us, Jed. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Jed. So let's start in academics. Um and Mike, we're going to start with you. You've uh, obviously been very successful in academic medicine and academic anesthesiology. So let me ask you first, what made you choose to work in academics? Obviously, you did a residency and then a fellowship. You could have gone into private practice. I, As far as I know, you did not. I think you've only been in academics, but correct me if I'm wrong. But what has made you go into and stay in academics? All
3: right. Uh, Jed. thanks for the opportunity to have us back at Accra. Um, so I, I had the privilege of training at Cleveland Clinic, so I did. Uh, I did my undergraduate medical education at Penn State, and then I went to Cleveland Clinic for uh, anesthesiology residency and fellowship. And during that time, I was very fortunate to really be in the midst of really great uh academicians. and I can name a few that you know come to mind. You know, Doctor uh, Robert Savage, Doctor Colleen Cook, uh, Doctor um, Al And all these really brilliant minds uh, were really a reflection of what it felt like to be, you know, an academician. Uh, They were great clinicians. They were great research scientists. They really were passionate about education and training of, you know, the next generation of clinicians. And they also were contributors, not locally in the Cleveland uh, Clinic, you know, uh, but they contributed across uh, the whole stratosphere in every aspect of anesthesiology and other uh, administrative roles uh they published transformative you know research that really changed the way we practice anesthesiology today. Uh, Dr. Cook, for example, did a whole lot of work in leadership and blood management and cardiac surgery. Uh, Dr. Savage is one of the founding fathers of uh echocardiography. and uh the the whole host of you know contributions goes on from there. So, during my training, I always wanted to be one of those guys. So, I did not even consider a private practice uh, job, Um, even though, you know, I knew that there were other aspects of, you know, private practice job that was also appealing. Uh, For example, the salary scale is quite different between the academics and the private, you know, enterprise. But I didn't even consider it because I wanted to basically contribute to medicine uh, and all the, you know, the pillars of medicine, right? I wanted to be a great clinician. Uh, I wanted to be a research scientist. I wanted to educate and train, uh, the next generation of, um, of anesthesiologists. And most importantly, I wanted also to learn from them. Cause if you, if I look back, I never reflect on my career cause I don't really think I've achieved what I want, you know, cause everybody has their personal goals. But when I reflect on my career, the majority of what people may think is an accomplishment came from all the residents and fellows that I've encountered, you know, in my training. Uh specific example pertaining to uh Accra, all right. I had the you know I had the opportunity to come on Accra because Dr. Joseph Cody was my fellow and he had the links with you and he said let 's go on our crack and talk about you know cardiac implantable electronic devices and that 's how we, we we started in the podcast you know arena and and it's gone you know on from there so uh to sum it up, I really did not even seek uh private practice uh, opportunities. I did not even interview at any private practice job i I felt the academic you know um, space was where I truly belonged. And um, and I also felt like you know all the way in the private enterprise you can do research. Obviously, clinical care is done everywhere. You can do research in private practice. Uh, you can do you know speaking engagement. You can educate you know residents and fellows, nurses, whoever you encounter. I felt that the network of collaborators that I needed to make me successful as um an, as, as an anesthesiologist would mostly be you know found in the academic. Uh, enterprise and and I, I and I think that was a really great choice because at Ohio State um, I can name a list of people who have influenced my career. I call them my own personal network of uh, co-mentors, uh, and they go from a whole host of like professors, such as Dr. Awad who is an anesthesiologist, uh, Dr. Um, Emil Daoud who is the chair of electrophysiology, who basically you know so Dr. Dowd just one day serendipitously just said, hey, we're working on the SICD, we're working on the IDE study, Ohio State is the lead enroller, why don't you look at the anesthetic implications for patients? And that's how I, my career in the EP space, you know, started. So, and then another example of, you know, so that's a collaborators. These are collaborators who are full professors. Then I have collaborators who are, were assistant professors, um, Dr. Minojai, um, associate professors, Dr. Flores, And then another person has been, you know, two people that have also, you know, contributed tremendously to my career as a med student by the name of, you know, Nick Kuma, who was on your podcast. Uh, We're doing cases, you know, I kept talking about, you know, finding thresholds to identify patients on LVADs, uh, receiving LVADs who may be at risk for early right ventricular dysfunction. And Nick, um, you know, was very instrumental in, you know, Helping us execute that task. So, uh, the in a nutshell, I thought the academic uh, environment was the best place to um, to really uh, identify uh, innovative solutions to complex problems because residents keep asking questions, and you have to find you know innovative you know solutions to to these uh, anesthetic issues. and And I think that's that that was my main you know. In a nutshell, those, those are my reasons.
1: Yeah, great. And a lot of that rings true for me as well. I'm in the same boat as you. As you know, Mike, I've never been in private practice and knew kind of even even before um, med school when I decided to go into medicine that I would want to be in academics and want to be very involved in, in teaching and learning in that way. So let me ask you this. One thing I, I have noticed for sure is that if you're in academics, especially if you do a fellowship and subspecialize, which you have in cardiac, which I have in critical care, you really... Are very siloed in in your clinical practice, right? So I haven't done OB anesthesia since I was a resident. I haven't taken care of kids, uh, at least young kids, since I was a resident. And I imagine it's similar for you. Do you ever miss that? Do you ever miss kind of having that broad practice since you're very specialized?
3: Yes, uh, Jed, this is this is an excellent question. So this is one of the one of the aspects of our academic medicine that I do miss a little bit. But over the years. I think it was a great decision not to, quote unquote, do all aspects of anesthesiology. Uh, I feel like in the day-to-day practice, you know, of a, uh, in my world as a cardiac anesthesiologist, the only way to transform or advance the field is to do it every day to help you identify trends, uh, help you refine your approaches to patient care, and even get a better and deeper understanding of what the surgeons do. So I my practice in Ohio State is, you know, as a cardiac anesthesiologist, we do cardiac, vascular, transplants, uh, EP, and thoracic. And my research has also grown in those areas. So especially in, like, transplantation, when I was a fellow, I would basically speak with most of my attendants. And we had no idea of the Cleveland Clinic. And this is not – I'm not basically speaking, you know, negatively about the clinic, but this was a global issue. There was no threshold of a pulmonary vein velocity that was predictive of pulmonary vein stenosis or dysfunction in a lung transplant, you know, patient. And I kept thinking about it as a resident and then as a fellow, and I still didn't have this threshold. Then I became an attendant. I was able to get a group of people that practiced cardiac anesthesiology at a high state, and we kept thinking about this complex, you know, problem. And we were able to come up with a systematic review, um, which identify that threshold velocity. And I think, and then in the same space is you know, like the paper we did with, which Dr. Cody is the lead author. Uh, when Dr. Cody was a fellow three, two, three years back, uh, there was a transformation. There was a huge shift from transvenous lead-based pacing and defibrillators to devices that are leadless and regarding the leadless pacemakers, And devices for defibrillation that were not transvenous, that was a subcutaneous implantable cardiovascular defibrillator. And I kept, you know, I gave a lecture on it, and Dr. Cody essentially came to me afterwards, brought the ASA um, practice advisory on cardiac implantable electronic devices. And there was no mention on these novel devices and how we should manage them. And Joe's diligence led to the creation of the only document in the anesthesiology literature that addresses how these devices should be managed uh, perioperatively. So even though I miss a little bit of not being able to do OB, PEDS, and all the other stuff that you would do in in a private enterprise, I think to be in the academic uh, arena and focusing on just cardiovascular, thoracic, and EP – those have provided me with opportunities that I would not have um, had if I was a general anesthesiologist. So, by publishing, identifying deficits, gaps in you know the, these aspects of our subspecial uh, of, of the subspecialty has also led to publications, have led to speaking engagements, and it, it provides you with that "quote unquote" uh, expert you know uh, recognition, but. Uh, But also to get promoted to be as a matter of fact, it's easier to get promoted when you have a focus on one area, become uh, an expert, and then you can become promoted in your academic institution. So so I do miss it, but I'm happy with, you know, where I'm at.
1: Yeah, I think that's well said. I feel the same way that I, I certainly miss some of that. And yet I think that if you find a niche for yourself, you gain a lot of satisfaction, as you have described, from Really feeling like you gain expertise in that area, that you can take that area further, ask questions in that area that you might not have time or inclination to ask if you were stretched across multiple different types of anesthesia. So pros and cons for sure. But um, for folks who are interested, I think that makes sense to me as well. Let me ask you this. You've been very successful. Clearly, you're a full professor. You've published extensively. You speak nationally and perhaps internationally internationally. You, uh, perhaps most impressively, have been one of the most frequent contributors to the ACRAC podcast, so you uh, have had a ton of success academically. We've talked, you've talked well already about how important mentors uh, have been to you throughout, and I think that is something we hear a lot. Success is really dependent on a, a very reliable network of mentors. What else would you recommend? What other advice would you give to people who are interested in not only being in academics, but Having success in academics that you can translate from your own experience.
3: All right, uh, excellent question, Jed. So, well, I'll be honest with you. I don't consider myself to be successful because I I don't really reflect on my career. I think um, my kids keep me grounded because once you walk through the doors at home, they don't. You're nothing, right? You just have to drive them around and make sure you have you have the you know the ability to get them what they want. So, but. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding mm-hmm. you know academic success, I think the first thing that you have to in order to be you know you have to have your personal goals because we have a whole host of you know um mentors, right? And you don't wanna be pigeonholed into I wanna be this and this and that. You have to have your own goals. If you wanna be like you wanna if you wanna publish, you have to have that. You know, diligence, you have to have the passion to do it. Uh, unfortunately, you know, during residency and fellowship, we do a lot of uh, clinical work, right? You're in the ORs, you're there late, you may you know, speak at a conference, present an abstract, or maybe be uh, in, contribute to a research paper or a book chapter. But we don't learn enough about all the nuances, all the stuff that you have to do when you become uh, an attendant. So you have to teach, you have to speak, you have to mentor. You know a whole host of you know undergrads, med students, residence fellows. There's and then you also have to contribute locally on all the different you know uh, committees that's in your that are in your hospital. And then you have to contribute nationally. So I think it's you have to first define what your personal goals are, so you don't feel like you're missing something. If you don't want to be an academician who writes and, you know, publishes, that's fine. But you if you want to publish, but you don't want to put in the work, you're not going to be satisfied because you're not going to have those papers, you know, um, a stand product, you know, as sort of like a satisfaction. So if you want to publish, which I think is a requirement, you have to learn how to do it. its It's just like any skill. The more you write, the better you write. Same as speaking. The more you speak, the better you become as a speaker. Teaching. The more you teach, the better you become a teacher. So you have to really practice these skills so you can refine them and get better at them. But it requires uh, that internally. So internally, you want to have a lot of diligence. You have to be resilient. I can tell you how many papers I've had rejected. You get the rejection. Don't feel dejected. I consider rejections as having a group of peers that are reviewing your paper and giving you guidance on how to make it better. So you take whatever rejections you get, look at the reviewers' uh, comments, improve upon the paper, and send it to another journal. Uh, Dr. Savage always used to say to me as a resident and as a fellow, every paper has a home. And it just requires you to do the work um, and just refine it and, you know, and and, and then get it published. Uh, so if you consider success to be promotions, that's also one aspect that people become dejected because they stay in one level for years and then they wonder, why am I not getting promoted? A simple advice is you have to know the requirements of your institution. So if I want to be promoted at Ohio state, I'm not going to look at the requirements of Johns Hopkins. I printed out the promotions and tenure guidelines for Ohio State, and then you look at all the different tracks. Are you a clinician scholar? Are you a clinician educator? Are you a clinical excellent type of person, or do you want to be on the tenure track? I felt the clinical scholar was fit my abilities, and then I just looked at the requirements and I kept checking them off to meet them. So that enabled me to be promoted at, I would say, a little bit of a rapid pace because I really knew what you know knowing what the rules are for the academic game quote unquote enables you to be successful so for anybody that wants to wants to be quote unquote successful in academics have your goals know what the requirements are pertaining to your institution and you have to do the work and also I would always encourage you you cannot do this alone when i look at all my publications over 80 to 90% of them has a resident, a fellow, another collaborator from another institution, and even collaborators who are not anesthesiologists. You need people with different ideas. You need a diversity in thought to be able to come up with all these concepts. So Joe's publication on cardiac implantable electronic devices, he essentially recruited um, collaborators from Cleveland Clinic, Massachusetts General Hospital, um, University of California, San Diego, Um, and, um, and I, am missing one other institution and all these eight authors came together and created this document. So you cannot do it alone. It's doable, but it required too much time. You want others to bring ideas. And we, and also think about it as an idea meritocratic system, right? Don't fight over positions. I have to be first author all the time. No, it does not matter. It's about who does the most work, who brings up that idea, and then you just keep uh, encouraging each other to get the job done. So I think those are really uh, some of the guidance that I'll tell people. I made a lot of mistakes along the way by reflecting backwards. I think just having a team where everybody trusts each other, like-minded people, you don't have that, you know, somebody trying, you know, there's no jealousy, and then you just, you know, um, work and hold each other accountable.
1: Yeah, I think that's all great advice. I would add I think a lot of people get intimidated, maybe they are in residency, maybe they don't really have time to do much in the way of academic productivity, they don't publish anything, they've maybe never published anything or not more than maybe a, you know, a, a book chapter or something like that. And they they you know, they have the idea in their head that there's colleagues of theirs who are MD PhDs and they've published, you know, 25 things before they even got to residency and you know, and it may feel like, ah, I can't do it, right? This is not for me. And I would say there are plenty of people, and I include myself in this, who have never published anything before finishing training. And you still absolutely can do it. You're surrounded. That's one of the really hugely nice things about being at an academic center is that you're surrounded by mentors, people who can help you learn how to do. The work if you want to do it and if you're willing to put the time in as you said mike and so i i would encourage people don't think that because you've never done it you're out of the game it, it is absolutely doable you have to take your time find people to work with collaborate with people who can mentor you and help you along the way and put in the work and you can do it if that's what you want to do
3: and, and Jed, i'll add one little point that i always uh, hear especially young career you know anesthesiologists they they always say this people want dedicated protected time to write. Uh there are centers that will give you that time, but it also comes at a cost, salary scale reduction. Or even if you get 20, 30 days of, and which is, you know, dispersed throughout the whole year, oftentimes when you have that day, that's not the day that all the ideas, all the solutions to these complex problems are gonna, you know, come to you. So Dr. Dowd was very profound. He he, he I remember when I got to, you know, the uh, Ohio State, I had published one article, which I made, you know, very minimal contributions. He just told me, just take your time. An introduction is maybe five, 10 sentences. Maybe you write one or two sentences a day. Just, Just break it down to very small aspects, you know, of the process. Because same with like, you know, a perfect example, like if you look at how, uh, Pixar created their first animated movie. I think it took them 15 to 20 years or something like that. And it took little steps for them to create that movie. Uh, and if you told any anesthesiologist to take that time to write a paper, people will be dejected. So it's it's a slow process when once you get a hang of it, it becomes really easy. Ideas come to you. People come to you to collaborate with. And then all of a sudden, you have a whole host of you know, publications. And then you have like a mentorship tree where you mentor people locally, people, you know, nationally and internationally. All you need in this day and age in this digital uh, revolution, all you need is a computer and you can collaborate with anybody to create, you know, um scientific work.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Um let me ask Mike you, briefly in your role as an, um a graduate medical education dean, talk a little bit about that, you know, if that's an additional role. Obviously, one does not have to have that role in order to be in academics, but you do. Talk a little bit about what that entails.
3: Fantastic. So um, my background, you know, when I came out of residency and fellowship, I wanted to be a great clinician. So my first three years, I was just focused on clinical work, and I slowly added research, uh, speaking, uh, you know, consulting for other industries. And then I wanted to pivot, you know, I I wanted the next, you know, challenge, and I was very uh, fortunate. And this is where mentorship... And having sponsors comes into play. Uh, Dr. Ernie Mazzaferi, who is the director of our Ross Heart Medical um, Center, uh, came to me and said, hey, there's this opportunity. I think, you know, you relate well with our learners. You seem to be interested in research education. I think there is this role of the assistant dean of graduate medical education. Uh, Maybe you should, you know, apply for it. And you, you know, he thought I would be a good fit. Uh, I had never been a program director, so I didn't have that background, but I felt like I would be, I had, you know, I work hard and I always want to learn. And, and, um, I really wanted to, you know, devote some of my, um, my attention abilities to improving graduate medical education at Ohio State. Not that it was in a bad state, but I, th- I thought I could also contribute, you know, to it. So I applied and luckily enough, I did, um, I, you know, was selected to serve in this role, and I've been in this capacity for um, two and a half years. Uh, I was onboarded during the pandemic, so I was able to learn how to uh, virtually onboard incoming residents and fellows to Ohio State University. And by doing so, I think one of the things that was uh, not really a deficit, but something that we could do better was. We weren't publishing a you know uh, high volume uh, scholars you know uh, work from the GME space, so we were able to, based on my experience, we were able to publish our virtual approaches to orientation, and still the only manuscript up you know available uh, teaching how you can do it uh, by virtually onboarding you know residents and fellows to your center uh, in a in, in the COVID space that required you know social distancing. And then I also am very close to the residents and fellows because I work close with them in the OR. I also learned some of the things that would have fostered their uh, ability to be um, efficient in their work. And I bring it to the dean. Uh, my my immediate boss, the associate dean, Dr. Scott Holliday, uh, said, I think, we you know, given the residents and fellows laptops so they can work remotely and social distance would also make them very efficient so they don't need all their – you know, to be in close proximity where we have desktops, so we're able to do that. So innovative solutions to things that maybe the standard um, program director may not be thinking of, I was able to bring that from my experience working with, you know, the industry, working in the clinical space, and also contributing with other collaborators and other institutions, and and I think – that has made me, you know, learn. and I think I'm up to speed now in the GME space. And, and I also learned a lot about the predation system, you know, and we created well-being initiatives. We're able to build a workout facility in the hospital so our residents and fellows can use it during their downtime. So I think bringing that diversity and experience and thought, and also there was demographic, you know, diversity as the only African-American in the GME office, African-American male, I was able to share some ideas that help with um, the, our residents and fellows. So it's it's been a good experience. And and I will say this, you know, a lot of people want to basically plan their careers. It's really hard to plan your career because you may not get everything that you want, but I think if you prepare and stay ready, opportunities will come your way if you do all the things that are required in the uh, academic space.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with that. You know, one thing I I think we would be helpful for people would be to just kind of hear um, a day in the life. And of course, that can be a lot of different things, but an average day in the life. So let me sketch out what I kind of think of as an average day in the life of an academic anesthesiologist. And Mike, you can add or subtract. But, you know, I think, again, there's going to be days for you when you have something involving your dean role. For me, there are obviously days I spend on being program director. But Just when you think of that aside, just being an academic anesthesiologist, I think for most people at an academic center, you are going to, on any given day, either work with residents or CRNAs or one of each. People should probably know that if you work with residents, you cannot have more than two rooms that you supervise at a time. So you can have two rooms each with a resident. You can have a one room with a CRNA and one with a resident, but you cannot have more than two rooms if either of them has a resident in it. If you are only supervising CRNAs, you can supervise more rooms. But let's talk about the resident situation. You'd have one or two rooms with residents. You would talk to those residents, I think, at most places the night before, Um, via either phone or in person or maybe text or email, depending on the practice at your center, to talk about the cases for the next day and plan your anesthetic. And then the next morning, as the attending, you would show up. Your resident would see the patient probably first in pre-op. You would then stop by, say hello to the patient's Check in with your resident. The resident would have set up the room. So, you know, you don't have to go set up an operating room unless you're working alone without a resident, which is possible. But most days you're probably working with residents. And so you would have the rooms already set up by them. And then you'd start your one of your cases with the resident. So the resident would do the intubation. You'd help them if needed, supervise that and any lines that need to be placed. And then you would do your other room where you would do the same thing. And then throughout the day, you're both supervising, teaching, helping with intubations, extubations, lines, and any problems that come up. You're probably seeing patients in pre-op so that they're ready for the next case in each of your rooms. You're giving morning breaks, lunch breaks, maybe afternoon breaks as well to your residents. Maybe if you're lucky, you're grabbing some food for yourself at some point in there. And then uh, you're either finishing your cases for the day or being relieved at some point by uh, another um, attending. And uh, then the cycle starts again. Now it can be a little different, as I said. Some days you're going to be doing, depending on your role, you may be doing research. Some days Mike may be involved with GME things. Plenty of days I'm obviously doing resident, uh, residency dedicated work. But for the clinical side, I think that encapsulates it. Mike, anything you would uh, add or change there?
3: No, I think you stated it. You know, I echo everything that you said. Are you 100% correct. The it's always a mix, you have meetings during the day, you would, you know, but, but the, the workflow, everything you stated is absolutely correct. And that's, that's basically how my career has been. Uh But you're right, there, you know, there'll be days that you have things, you know, a day dedicated to either GME or to, you know, program director role. Uh, but the most of the time in the academic practice, you are, you know, the attending, you know, anesthesiologist. And um I think one thing that may be a little not related to this, but I, I always want to emphasize this because a lot of my residents bring up this question like how do you um how do you manage your time and how do you do work-life quote unquote balance? And I just want to share with everyone that I think it's work-life integration because you cannot put your career on hold till your kids are older and because at that point people may not even consider you to be a hardworking person or, you know, because there's always a lot of talent that is coming. So I think work-life integration is the best, you know, a lot of, oftentimes some of my research has been done during my kids basketball game. When they have like a break and I have my phone, I can even write my thoughts. So with this era of the digital revolution, you can do anything wherever and whenever. And I don't think you should put one thing on hold for the other. And, and, you know, Joe can attest to it. Uh, sometimes I, I'll call him from the gym and we'll talk about ideas for research and, and then we we'll come up with topics. So, so the, I know that was a little bit outside the scope of that I, a day in the life. But I just want to you know, emphasize to the listeners that it's everything we're talking about is doable. You just have to manage your time and you need a great social support. You know, my wife and kids are always supportive of everything I do. And I still dedicate time to be a father and a husband.
1: Yep, totally agree. So the only thing I would add to this discussion of academic careers is the, the one thing that I do that Mike does not is being a program director. And I would say that that's something I enjoy immensely. It's probably the best part of my job. And being involved in resident education in that way, I mean, one of the nice things about being in academics is that you're going to be involved in resident education, you're going to teach residents. But having that opportunity, if you really are passionate about it, to get involved in program leadership, whether that's as a fellowship uh, in the fellowship role of a kind of fellowship program director or the residency side or even on the medical student side. But being able to be involved in medical education is, I think, a really a wonderful thing about academics and something that's been a real central part of, of my career. Um, so I love that. And then obviously, you can have a balance. And it's not that this isn't possible in private practice, but certainly I think in academics, it's pretty common to do a sp- subspecialty in my case, critical care. And then I spent about half my clinical time in the ICU and the other half in the OR. Having that balance is very nice. I don't think, although, you know, Kyle and Joe can certainly correct me if they have a different view of this, that it's as common in private practice to have at least for critical care to to do kind of a half and half critical care and OR type job. Certainly, Joe will talk to us about how he is able to do, I think, some, some cardiac anesthesia and re- general anesthesia. That's maybe more common. But ha- being able to have a subspecialty like critical care and balance it with some OR, I think is a, a nice piece of my job as well. Okay. So we've covered academics, I think, pretty well. Let's turn to um, something I know a lot less about, the military careers. And Kyle, we're going to talk to you Tell us a little bit about how you learned about a medical career in the Air Force and how you got involved and what the pathways are for people to do medicine, or in this case, anesthesiology, in the military.
4: All right. Well, uh, thanks again, Jed, for having me on. I, um, With regards to finding out about uh, Air Force and, and their benefits for a medical career, um, ultimately, I would say it came up during the application process. Uh, I'm sure everyone that applies uh, for medical school is going to see advertisements from all of the branches on uh, you know benefits of paying for medical school as well as uh, assisting you throughout uh, medical school with other other you know payments and, and covering all your expenses so that's probably when I first heard about it. Uh, I would say that the process really starts after your MCAT scores are finally in. Um, that's when the, most branches will start to, take your phone calls and start the application process. Uh, and at that point is when um, if you have at least specifically for the air force there, they always fill a hundred percent of their scholarship slots and have to deny some uh, not so much for the other branches, but uh, if you have a MCAT score above a certain amount and you got acceptance letters to at least one medical school, you are already accepted with the scholarship uh, even before Deciding on which medical school—it doesn't matter to the military or the Air Force general, uh, as long as you have one and you're, you you uh, commit to going. Uh, essentially, um, so from there, ultimately, I could talk about kind of the, at least the pathway to ana- becoming anesthesiologist from uh, from that point. Uh, you you'll end up doing about five weeks of uh, basic training, uh, commissioned officer training uh, ahead of time in at uh, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, it may be a little different now but that's all before you even go to medical school so it's kind of a wake-up call on uh military life you've you know just finished the mcat all this you know studying your chemistry biology and all of a sudden now you're in you're wearing your uh, camo and and kind of marching around it's kind of a a sight to see with all these young docs and (laughs) without having any idea what they're doing but it's uh kind of gets you integrated into the system and kind of uh, what to kind of maybe look forward to in the future. But after that point, you have almost no exposure to the military for four years in medical med school. Your job is to um, study do well and, you know, get into a residency program at that point, they're going to pay for all of your medical school, all of your uh, books, supplies, required equipment. Um, And then they also pay you a stipend for uh, it's probably a little higher now, but maybe around 30,000 a year, uh, to live off of. Um, and at that point, uh, probably around the end of your third year is when you start to really consider, uh, well, what actual specialty you want to get into because the military match is a little different and they match earlier in the process than any other, um, uh, civilian, uh, sites. And, and what that does is the air force, essentially the easiest way to explain it is that they decide, uh, in the future, in four years, I need 20-some anesthesiologists in the service this year. Well, the Air Force can only train maybe 8 to 10 uh, at San Antonio. So they need 10 additional ones. Uh, so then they what they do is civilian-deferred. And of those civilian-deferred spots, uh, you, a couple may be civilian-sponsored where you're paid as an active-duty member. Um, the hospital doesn't have to pay your salary, but you go as a resident in the civilian side. And earn active duty years. Those are rare. They're not the norm. A lot of times, like myself, you get you, you prefer to train civilian side. So you rank civilian deferred instead of a military spot as your number one choice in that uh, military match in December. And if you get accepted, then you continue on the civilian um, match process. Uh, And at that point, once you, um, you know, get into a civilian program, you continue as uh, working as a civilian uh, resident without any military um, service until the end of it. Um, That process is very similar with the fellowship part as well. At the end uh, of residency, the fellowship, you gain uh, a two-year commitment for every year. Um, You are on a fellowship, so that's a a big deciding factor towards the end of residency, kind of what you want to, if you want to do that or not, because it, again, adds to this military commitment that has um, you know, uh, benefits as well as other uh, issues associated with that. So it's something to consider. But that's kind of the quick process.
1: Then. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more about military anesthesia.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies.
1: All right and we're back with Kyle great thanks Kyle so let's let me ask you a couple questions so one that initial kind of five week training camp you're obviously still in college right when that happens because you haven't been to med school yet so that you just sort of take is it in the summer or do you take some time off when do you do it as a as a college student
4: most commonly it is done uh, the summer before you actually start med school so I think usually it's around July August is you start med school so it's the uh, Five, six weeks beforehand. Some people can actually take it after their first year going into their second year. Uh, just I wouldn't recommend that because you've got
1: so many other things going on with med school. So that's OK. So that happens maybe the summer after you graduate college. And then the military is paying for all four years of medical school, plus giving you a stipend. And for that, you owe them. How? How? What? Forget about, um, you know, the fellowship for a second. Just from yeah. them paying for medical school, what do you owe them?
4: So they'll, they, you essentially owe them a year for a year. So it's four years. Uh, some there are variables like some people will join late uh, for a scholarship, and you might only owe three. Um, but it's mainly a year for
1: a year. Okay, and then the t- if so, you either do your residency in the military, in which case you're at a military residency program, or like you said, you get a, a civilian deferment and you do it in a regular what what I would consider a you know a, a the kind of programs I looked at are just a regular anesthesia residency program, non-military, or I guess civilian would be the word. Does that matter in terms of your time? Do you still owe time for, uh, Do you, or I guess I should say, do you pay back any of the time if you're in the military residency as opposed to a civilian residency, or no, you don't pay any time back during residency?
4: No, the only, and the, the benefit, I guess, would be uh, if you're due a military uh, residency is that you, you earn pay and, and rank during that time, but it doesn't eliminate the four years required afterwards. Uh, so you're going to be, you know, having a, an officer captain type pay where you're making almost a hundred thousand dollars is a huge deal as a resident <laughs> versus, you know, on the civilian side, but there's always, there's other things to consider on, you know, uh, especially exposure on the civilian side, uh, getting your cases is a lot uh, easier on the civilian side than, the the one program that the air force offers
1: Uh, and that's just uh, you know the way it is okay so after you finish residency you still owe four years but if you choose to do a fellowship you're going to owe two additional years for each year of fellowship is that right that's what it was when i was applying through and do you if you do a civilian residency are you guaranteed to be able to do a fellowship or you have to get permission for the military to do a fellowship you have to also
4: apply and ask Essentially, to get permission because they're expecting and they've budgeted you to come out at that
1: future date. OK, so that's a potential downside is that you're you're kind of not totally your own. You're in control of your own career. Right. You you exactly. may or may not be allowed to do a fellowship, even if you want to do one and even if you're willing to to pay back the additional years. Okay, so then you finish training with or without a fellowship. Let's say you don't do a fellowship. You finish your residency. You now owe four years in the military, and obviously that's going to be whatever branch of the military you're in, in your case, the Air Force. You work then as an anesthesiologist in the Air Force for those four years?
4: Correct. Yeah. So you'll do uh, There's about six actual military treatment facilities that have surgical services, so um, there's not... Uh, A lot of places that you can uh, go, but ultimately you rank them towards the end of your residency on where you'd prefer to go, but it's really the needs of the air force on uh, a lot of things. uh, And where you'll end up being. Um, I was stationed at uh, Keesler air force base on the Gulf coast here uh, and San Antonio, Vegas, um, you know, there's various ones, but uh, the largest one's going to be the one in San Antonio. Uh, The one I'm at had, you know, what six ORs, maybe two, two or three endo suites. So they're pretty small, community-based, essentially hospitals that you're going to be working at uh, on the in the uh, military or the
3: Air Force side. So.
1: Okay. And now, of those four years, how much of that time is spent working in the U.S., kind of at a military base versus deployed internationally with the military?
4: So, the, uh, for the most part, it's going to be completely you know, maybe deployed in a four year time period, maybe twice, which is a six month deployment uh, for the most part, um, with, uh, otherwise you're going to be stationed at that base, uh, and you likely won't be moving to a new base in that four year period. Cause it's just, uh, they don't usually move the, um, doctors around as much as they would the other, uh, military members, uh, for, uh, just continuity purposes, uh, but the uh, deployments are usually six months long. uh, So you should at least expect uh, one or two out of that.
1: And you can obviously be sent anywhere the military needs you. What is the work like? What is the set? I mean, I guess it probably depends on where you go, but maybe could you give us an example or maybe an interesting clinical experience from, from one of your own deployments, if you're willing to share.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, with the, First, on the on the military side, in the Air Force, Army, uh, it is going to be a little different. The the exposure to the CRNA staff as well they're they're completely independent. Um, there is no supervising. There is no your boss may even be uh, uh, a colonel CRNA that you kind of answer to. So those are the kind of dynamics that you kind of have to work through, especially coming out as a new new grad that you're uh, really trying to. Uh, you know, get your feet under you as well as study for your oral boards. All those things, but ultimately, um, those dynamics. Everyone's going to be doing their own cases uh, in the on the uh, at the military treatment facilities. But uh, once you get ready for a deployment, there's really two ways an anesthesiologist can deploy in the Air Force. Uh, might be different in the Army, but they have a critical care and air transport team, uh, which is essentially you act as a critical care doc, uh, transporting patients from. Uh, forward deployed locations in um, C-130 or, or planes coming back even from Germany to the U.S. Uh, and keeping uh, taking care of them in route. Uh, those deployments can be anywhere from three to six months. Uh, the other, uh, more commonly uh, deployed situation, where which is what I was on, is what uh, what they call a ground surgical team, uh, which is a surgical team made of six members: uh, anesthesiologist, a surgeon. Uh, or nurse uh, or ER nurse, uh, surgical tech, and then uh, ER doc, and then uh, kind of a uh, a senior uh, admin type of a member. So it's a six person team that has to be forward deploy or able to forward deploy with minimal equipment, but still should be able to take care of at least three critically ki- critical uh, patients uh, uh, needing surgical intervention. Um, so that training takes several months to do before you actually get spun up to go on a deployment. Um, I did that. Uh, I was out one year from residency and then I started that training. And then I was sent uh, to Qatar uh, for a month uh, with the plans to be there the entire six or seven months, but things changed and we got forward deployed from there to go to Jordan and Syria um, where I sent. you go from in Qatar. It's beautiful. We got a, <laughs> places to stay and it's great. And then we, uh, where we went, it was not, uh, it was definitely, uh, uh, opening, but it was the tip of the spear that you kind of expect when you join. Uh, and it makes you kind of appreciate the real reason you're in the military. Uh, not until you really get out there and start taking care of people that, um, you know, if anyone goes on missions, like just the, the amount of, um, uh, you know, tragedy that goes out there that can be easily avoided or, or even just, surgical interventions that we take for granted that sometimes we can, uh, that we can provide to our coalition forces out there or family members, um, if needed, uh, is really uh, beneficial. But when it comes to like a, a, um, actual case, uh, or, um, event that happened, you know, there was various gunshots, uh, between coalition members and, um, uh, trying to make sure I won't say anything I can anyways, but ultimately, uh, We have coalition forces that work with us and our military members that um, Syrian uh, Army also knows who they can and cannot shoot at and ultimately had to take care of a few of them. Um, There was uh, the general of the members that were helping our team out uh, the most. His kid had an incarcerated hernia. He was 12 kilos and hadn't been eating for four days. Glucose was down into the 30s. He was uh, essentially shocking you know, needed this taken care of so we're doing surgery in a, in a room dirt floors flies and we're trying to take care of this kid and all my equipment is meant for an, an adult <laughs> uh, military member our our vents that we fly up into Syria with uh are you know are the, are the size of a shoebox uh, essentially like my, my meds had to be all adjusted everything's Tiva. there is no gas you kind of do what you have to do to save this kid um because We want his dad to maintain, you know, uh, uh, relations with with our four deployed members that are really out there fighting. Uh, So there's a lot of that going on uh, that that people don't see uh, or hear about, but um, there wasn't any, we're not really ramped up right now over there. So there's not a lot of active uh, trauma that came in for our team while we were there, uh, but just some of the things that we did.
1: Yeah uh, I mean thank you for your service I can't imagine how challenging and and um you know difficult that must be to to do that kind of medicine and for a lot of reasons so I'm really uh, grateful to you and your colleagues for for doing it. Um you uh, did you do 4 years or how long did you serve in the Air Force? I believe you had just finished your time is that right? Yeah, 4 years. Okay. And uh so you now if tell me if I'm right here I think when you finish you obviously could stay full, you know, stay in full time. You've done your required commitment. Some people choose to stay. You can leave, I think, and again, I might be wrong here. So you'll tell me, but you, I think you can leave completely or you can leave, but still kind of stay in the reserves. Right. Is that right?
4: Yeah. So the, um, several members will try to, especially if they did the, the civilian or did the residency in the military, those years kind of will count towards um, some reserve time. So you've already committed a lot of time and what they call points. So if you can do your reserves, uh, the benefit of that also, I've got a, uh, a doc who's in my group here now that I'm private practice, but he is doing reserves and he's able because we all have to pay for our own insurance. So he's able to buy, uh, you know, Tricare and for his entire family of six or seven kids. <laughs> he's able to actually cover them with very, you know, a, a really small uh, bill relative to me having to get private insurance.
1: Now, so you did you opt not to do the reserves? Is that right? Yeah, I just got
4: out. And then, I mean, that's always an opportunity here uh, going forward. But um, just wanted to get out completely first and then uh, make that decision.
1: Great. All right. Well, congrats on finishing your time. And again, thanks for all your service. Um, Now, we could obviously talk to you about private practice now that you've started that. But let's turn to Joe and uh, hear his thoughts. So, Joe, you obviously, we know, did a fellowship in an academic center at The Ohio State University with Dr. Sando here. Um, and then you, I think, went straight into um, private practice in a community setting. So tell us a little bit about why you chose that instead of staying in academics.
2: Sure. So I was um, interested in academics and private practice, and I couldn't really uh, decide. But um, the one thing that I noticed doing my um, cardiac anesthesia fellowship was, hey, I, I kind of miss OB. And I, some people maybe tune into this podcast and think I'm crazy for saying that, or some people may do just, uh, OB, but I, but like I miss OB and I miss feeds and I miss doing my blocks. And, um, so, so I really wanted to, uh, be able to do everything in anesthesia. So that was sort of my biggest draw to choosing to go, um, into it now at the same time, I knew by doing that, I would have to give up some, some things like it's pretty hard to find, uh, um mixed practice job where i'm doing uh, general and cardiac and um and be, still be able to be doing the uh heart transplants and the uh LVADs like the durable VADs and so uh that was sort of a downside to me uh, not going into uh, academics or like a or a uh, bigger center.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um you know, i realize we um Kyle, we did not ask you about a day in the life. Now obviously uh, that would vary a lot based on whether you were deployed or not. Um, but I'm going to say uh, that, and you tell me if I'm right. That you know, when you're here at the military base, your day is probably, um, you know, you said you're doing your own cases, so that's one way in which it's different. But it's probably not that dissimilar from being in a private practice if you were doing your own cases in private practice, other than that you're taking care of military members when you're deployed. As you said, it could be in a very nice. You know, hospital in Qatar, or it could be, uh, you know, on a dirt floor uh, in Syria. So very, very different. And anything you want to add to that, obviously, you know it better than I do.
4: I mean, there's obviously the challenges of deploying and leaving your family, and that uh, that kind of weighs on you, you know, every day you're out there. But you're trying to make the most out of your time. But uh, you know, ultimately, being a forward deployed unit, we were always on call, had to have all of our equipment ready. Uh, you know, I used one or two backpacks that I had to have all of my vents, everything available and all my meds. So it's just one of those things you kind of just keep checking and checking and waiting, but, um, you have a lot of downtime on deployment. Uh, a lot of, um, for me, I had no internet and I was preparing for my oral boards. So by myself, so it was kind of a, uh, a, a lonely time out there, but it was at least time I could get away from the kids and <laughs> and get ready.
1: Yeah. All right, thanks. All right, so Joe, let's go back to you. So, um, you know, you talked about kind of your decision and and some of the pros and cons, things you had to give up, but the but what you got kind of in exchange in terms of being able to do more than just cardiac. Um, tell me a little bit about who typically employs anesthesiologists in the community. Are you working for a practice for a hospital? Uh, does it depend? Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so so it's kind of a changing uh, landscape. So I'd say uh, if you pick a peek at how things were in the early uh, 2000s or so things were mostly what we think of as a traditional uh, private practice so that would be like a private group of doctors they're owned Um, there are partners in the in the group and uh, a partner is basically like an owner of a company Um, to become a partner uh, you typically would start out as employed and they call a partner track and you could basically put in kind of either you pay or you do basically sweat equity where you would work for less money for a couple of years, and then you become partner if they chose. Um, so that's sort of the, um, kind of older kind of partner partnership, uh, private practice that, uh, still is around, but it's not quite as common. Um, the other things that are, that are commonly seen is you're you could be, um, uh, be um, employed uh, directly by the um, hospital system, um, so that's uh, not too uncommon. Where you may work for the community hospital, or you may work for it may be a hospital network, and they employ you. Um, or kind of the other third uh, big category is is the um, is the is the uh, physician um, um, management companies or or, uh, sometimes people call them, um, anesthesia, uh, management, management companies. So, um, there are several big ones in the, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, country, uh, Napa Northstar in, in vision are like three that come to the, and they're these, basically these big, uh, um, big, uh, big, uh, national companies and they employ, um, anesthesiologists and CRNAs and AAs and um they basically um have contracts with hospitals to uh, provide anesthesia uh, services and they take care of the the billing the insurance the HR they take care of all that stuff and then um you're you're not a partner in these groups you're employed for a set wage and set vacation and that sort of thing. So um, those are sort of the three big employers that I'm familiar with.
1: Yeah, that sounds like uh, what I've heard as well. Um, So you're in the community setting, you kind of talked about some of the pros and cons of that. But if you had to say, what's your favorite part of working in the community setting? What keeps you there as opposed to going back to private practice?
2: I think it's great that I get I mean
1: to, sorry, to academics. I, I said private practice, I meant going no, to what keeps you in private practice.
2: Sure. Um I uh, the the breadth of the cases and the variety of the of the cases is probably what I love. Like I love doing cardiac anesthesia. Um that is my favorite by far. But sometimes it gets uh monotonous and uh and you want to do something uh, different. So there might be, you, you know, um, a day when our, um, PEDS fellowship trained people are, are on vacation or post-call. So I might have to do some PEDS and I think that's, that's great. And now by PEDS, uh, I'm not a uh, fellowship trained in PEDS, but, um, you know, they're, they're, um, a healthy PEDS and they're, they're typically come in for um, MRI or ear tubes or something that, even a guy who's uh, fellowship trained in cardiac for um, uh, adults can uh, figure out. Um, or I get to go to uh, OB or ECT or so, like, I just love that I get to do everything. Um, so, uh, that's probably my, uh, that would be something where if I did what, um, what, uh, what, 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 uh, you do or what, uh, what uh, Mike does. I I mean, you you guys might change the world and I can't do that, but I get to do a little bit of everything else. So,
1: yeah. Sure. And what, what do you miss the most about academics? I mean, you spent obviously your residency and then fellowship. So you've got some experience. What do you miss the most about it?
2: Um, I feel uh, sometimes like I get concerned that I'm not challenged by my peers and colleagues to stay, up to date with, um, journals and the latest and greatest and, and, uh, and, uh, that kind of thing. I mean, we, you know, my, 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 uh, my uh, community group, we do try to do uh, journal clubs and that sort of thing, but it's just, it's not the same as being with people that are educating and, and, uh, that kind of stuff. So, um, but, uh, so I miss that, like the uh, camaraderie of academics and, and always talking about the, this article in anesthesiology that uh, Mike Essendon published or something, but, um, but, um, and then I, I I can't do the same big cases. Like I still do big cases. I still do type A dissections and triple valves for uh, endocarditis and um, I do a ton of structural heart, so I, I get to do some really cool stuff, but at the same time, like I'm not doing LVADs and I'm not managing ECMO and I'm not doing heart or liver transplants. So, um, so that's sort of the, that's the downside and some stuff that I really miss, um, in the community setting.
1: Okay. Tell me about a day in the life for, you know, you, to the extent that you can connect that to what an average day in the life looks like for someone in private practice anesthesia.
2: It's, it's actually really not that different from what you had, uh, described for like a typical day. So the, um, so, so, so I get my, um, assignment the evening, uh, before and I, and I typically start off with uh, three to four rooms. And I, uh, go through those, uh, patients chart in the, uh, EMR at home. And I just, and I do like a skeleton pre-op and I make sure there's nothing crazy. And then, uh, case start at seven 30. So I usually get there six 15, I see my three or four patients and I'm uh, typically, uh, supervising the RNAs, um, cases get going, um, help with intubations lines, um, some days I'm dedicated to like TEE and um, structural heart. So if I'm in a structural heart room and I have to help with a TEE guidance for say like a Watchman amulet or a magic Clipper or something, then it's just me. Or if they're lucky, if I'm lucky, there'll be a uh, C, uh, RNA who's free that, I, that um, helps me. Um, and then uh, the biggest thing in private practices when you go home typically depends on when you're going to be on call or when you were on call. So, um, once in a while you'll have to work post call. Um, not too much, but if it happens, you're typically the first one out. If you're, or if you're on call the next day, um, that person uh, gets out at a, a decent time, hopefully. And you're basically go home as the rooms start to come down. Um, there's really not, there is a relief system, but the uh, relief is just from like the next people in the pecking order to go home. Um, and then you go home and you start all over for the next day. So that's my typical day.
1: Fair enough. Now, do you ever do any of your, so you said when you're, when you're structural heart, you do those alone. Are you ever in an OR doing your own cases? Yeah. So,
2: so, uh, sometimes like, like if there's like, uh, single case at the surgery center where it doesn't make sense to send a C uh, RNA for one-to-one. So like, so like a surgery center that may uh, happen, or if there's like, if the, if the numbers just don't not work out and um, it's, it's just from a a staffing standpoint, like it, it makes sense to have the doc um, staff say it's just a day where MRI needs covered at seven 30. And then there's a, case in radiology and then there's a private practice at gi doc that has a couple endos you you may be like the float doc and you're just doing those uh uh cases and there's no crna or resident so i mean and i i don't mind doing that from time to time i think it, it keeps my skills up i still know how to sign into the pixis and that sort of thing so
1: yeah. And, and we should say, I think I may have mentioned earlier, you know, there are certainly times in private, uh, in academics where you are going to do your own cases. Um, it, I think it varies at, 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 Hopkins. It's relatively rare. I think at some other places it's more common, but you know, you, you will occasionally, um, or maybe more often in academics still have a room as an attending on your own. Um, and it is a nice, uh, opportunity to, to remember how to, how to do all that. Um, Locum's work is something people are hearing a lot about, especially these days. My understanding of this, Joe, and you'll tell me what I'm missing, is that people uh, often practices need extra anesthesiologists. That may be because someone went out on leave or someone is sick, or it may be these days because everyone's desperate for staff. And so there are uh, agencies that will kind of hire you and then find places for you to go. It might be to cover for a week, a month. It might be for longer, shorter um but you kind of get uh, short stints in different places almost like a traveling nurse might travel around that's my understanding of it but i've never done it is that right or what do you what do you te- want people to know about locums work
2: yeah no i i i mean i i i think that's pretty much true i mean i've done some um in uh, in uh, my case i i didn't go through a um agency i i basically had some opportunities and some uh, connections and people that said hey we need some help if you're interested in uh, coming up to our practice, you, you know, or, and, uh, you, you, you usually use your, so if you're like me, you know, I, I just go on my, uh, my, uh, vacation weeks. And if you're kind of, uh, if, if you're kind of new to practice and you still have a ton of student debt and that sort of stuff. And you know, it, it's kind of nice. Um, I will say I, didn't feel comfortable doing it till i was about two years out um so my first job was 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 uh, great and i had mentorship even from the other uh, private practice guys so i think i really needed that for my first uh, job out so i don't think i would do a uh, locum to work because y- you're basically thrown into environments where you know nothing for a short period of time so you don't know the quality of the um surgeons you're working with or the quality of the hospital or how to do stuff. So, um, I, I would say it's a great way to, uh, practice anesthesia and it makes some uh, extra money, but, um, I, I don't know if I would do it as a, as a new grad. That's, that's not to say you can't, that's just sort of how I felt. Um, now Jed, you had talked about uh perk of being in, um, academics and practicing uh, general and, um. And uh, critical care. Um, I work with a uh, gentleman who does strictly uh, locums work, and he is boarded in anesthesia and uh, critical care medicine. So he'll do one week of um, anesthesia, and then he'll go somewhere else, and he'll do critical care for a few weeks and manage patients on ECMO in the uh, ICU at big centers and that sort of stuff. And then he'll get sick of that and then he'll have a, a contract someplace else and he'll come back to, um, anesthesia. So I, and I will say that in most private groups, um, that's really hard to do just because it's, it's hard to find ways to compensate people for scheduling people for calls, for figuring, um, all that stuff out for ICU and anesthesia. But he's, but he's, a guy in his uh, mid-career and he's made it at work as locums and he's excellent clinician. And so um, that's just another thing that I never thought about till I met him. So
1: yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks, Joe. All right. This has been great. I think we've really given some good overviews of the three career paths we've discussed today and people can obviously look more into the different options if they're interested. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations I want to hear what you guys are checking out these days that you'd recommend the audience also check out. Um, Joe, why don't we start with you? What do you got to recommend?
2: So I I just got a book as a gift from, from one of my colleagues. It's called the baby owner's manual. It's by a pediatrician called, (laughs) uh, called uh, Louis Bergenick. I hope I said his name right. And um, it's, and so, so I have my first child coming in April And it's basically this book that is like babies for dummies and uh, it seems really helpful. So if anyone's expecting, I would uh, suggest you check out this uh, pediatrician book called The Baby Owner's Manual.
1: That is awesome. Um, And congratulations, Joe, on your upcoming first child. I will say if I wasn't married to a pediatrician, I probably would have needed that book. But I had a built-in manual in our our house, which made a huge difference. Um, Kyle, how about you? What do you recommend?
4: Uh, this book's kind of a, a, a longer read, but uh, "Fingerprints of the Gods." I think it's by Graham. I think Hancock. Right? He's a uh, ultimately speaks on kind of the natural uh, wonders of our world, and ultimately trying to figure out uh, maybe there's alternative reasons why things are uh, were created, uh, or created or in not following necessarily the same uh, archaeology or geology thoughts, and, and giving. Uh, maybe, alternative uh views on some of these things that
1: we see great. great very interesting all right thank you and mike what do you got for right.
3: us yeah my recommendation is uh there's this show on uh showtime it's um billions it's a tv series on showtime it's a great show it's it's based on uh a hedge fund manager and some of his activities are uh, are not great at best uh he's successful but not what you want to, you know, not the kind of success you want to, you know, you want to be associated with, but it's a phenomenal show. It's been around for maybe six seasons and they have a new season this year and I just got into it. So if anybody has some free time, I think uh, Billions is a great
1: show. Awesome. Yeah, we we watched, oh man, the first several seasons of that and then we stopped, but um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, well, I'm going to recommend, I I just saw actually with my oldest daughter last weekend, um the new Avatar movie, The Way of Water. And we um, I, I, we saw it on the big IMAX 3D screen, which, you know, there aren't a lot of movies, I think, I mean, people can disagree, that I think are really worth it to see on that kind of screen, but this is one of them. And if you saw the first Avatar, you'll know that James Cameron just does an amazing job with really creating just incredible scenery and animation and, you know, effects. And to see it on the big screen was pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, I think the, the storyline itself was slightly less compelling than the first one, but it was still very interesting. It's long. It's about three hours and 15 minutes. So you have to be ready for a, a long haul, but it's a it was a lot of fun to see. Um, and I actually to kind of pair along with that, there's a really interesting um, interview on the podcast Smartless uh, of James Cameron, where he talks about uh, both this movie and the fact that there are I believe they filmed three of them at the same time, this one and then the two that will come one every year for the next two years until it is finished. So um, that'll be really fun to see, too. All right, gentlemen, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Chad. Thank you. Thanks, Chad. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay jwolpaw on Twitter. And we're at Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's patreo ncom A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple.